Good morning. I feel like something's missing here. Wacko for Flacco as uh, Joe Flacco's agent is. I'll just say I hope his agent tithes. So, um, <laughs> so we are here in the third week of our look at chapter 7 of Romans. After this, we're going to take a little break from Romans. We will be uh, having a special series during the, uh, during the season of Lent called Hope New and Otherwise. I'm excited that the next couple weeks we're going to bring in some more folks that we've uh, supported over the years. We have Brian Float coming in next week. Brian uh, is with Kingdom Reign, and he's going to talk about his ministry uh, mentoring young pastors in uh, areas where the church is under severe persecution. Uh, and uh, the following week we will be uh, talking, or we'll be hearing from Dan McWilliams, who is the area director for InterVarsity here in the Baltimore area. Uh, later on in the month, we are going to get a chance to uh, hear from Danny O'Brien, who is the senior pastor of Grace Fellowship Church, the church that planted us low these 10 years ago. So it should, uh, should be a good time, and uh, then we will pick back up with Romans 8 after Easter, starting in April. But today we are in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 25. What then shall we say? Is Torah sin? Absolutely not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was apart from Torah. For I wouldn't have known what coveting really was if Torah hadn't said, do not covet. But Torah, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from Torah, sin is dead. Once I was alive, apart from Torah, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. I found the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, Torah is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Now, did that which is good then become death to me? Absolutely not. But in order that sin might become utterly sinful, it produced, it might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that Torah is spiritual. But I am unspiritual. I'm sold as a slave to sin. I don't understand what I do. Or what I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate, that very thing I do. And if I do what I don't want to do, I agree that Torah is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's good but I can't carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I don't 
want to do. That's what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me doing it. So I find this Torah at work, or another way you could say that is, this is what I have found out to be true about Torah. When I want to do good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner man, I delight in God's law. I delight in God's Torah. But I see another Torah at work in the members of my body, waging war against the Torah of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law, the Torah of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man am I. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's Torah, but in a sinful nature, a slave to a Torah of sin. Last week, Brent Latham appropriately reminded us that what we are not to do when we find, when we read Paul's letters or anything else for that matter, is to look at it as a puzzle that needs to be solved. But at the same time, it is true that Paul is setting up here a paradox, and it is the difficulty of resolving this paradox that has led so many people over the years to take such different points of view on how we understand this chapter. Two weeks ago, we spent a good long time looking at some different ways that we might understand what it is Paul is saying here. Paul, of course, keeps using this word I, but who is referred to? Is Paul talking about himself? Is he talking about himself as he used to be? Is he talking about himself as he wishes he could be or as he wishes he weren't? Is he talking there about himself as a representative human being or is he talking about himself as a representative Israelite? Is he talking about himself as though he were Adam? Is he talking about himself as though he were Cain? What shall we say then? Is this passage messed up? Certainly not. But I do think it's important that we realize why it is difficult. I think at first blush we read it and we say, yeah, I don't want to do what I do and what I do I don't want to do. And boy, that seems to fit my life. Doesn't that make sense? But we do have these parts of this passage, like in verses 13 and 14. Did that which is good then become death to me? No, absolutely not. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. And we know Torah is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. You have a question, James? Are you just scratching? There's nobody next to you for you to do that little trick with. Okay, okay. We know, Paul says, the the Torah is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Does that seem to ring a false note in light of what we hear before that. Chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, what does Paul say? He says, But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness. 
So last chapter he says, we've been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness. I guess he could be saying, you have been set free from sin and become the slaves to righteousness, but me, I'm still unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I don't think that's probably what he wants to say. He does say in the second half of verse 25, so then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's Torah, but in the flesh, a slave to the Torah of sin. Again, Paul, does Paul seem like the kind of guy who is going to identify himself as a slave to the Torah of sin? Does that, does that fit with the Paul that we know? It's not a rhetorical question. That, but yeah. <laughs> Yes, no, maybe. What? Definitely no. Absolutely not. Oh, Marty's going to say, me genoita. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, elsewhere he says, I'm the worst of all sinners. You think you're bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I guess you could say in that sense he is. Let's, let's look at what he says after this in, in, in chapter 8. He says, and so he condemned sin in, in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of Torah might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So on the one hand, he seems to be saying one thing. On the other hand, he seems to be saying something else, doesn't he? Some of you ask me what I really think about this. I will tell you. I think it is helpful to look here at chapter 7. Not as what necessarily is objectively true, but as what is subjectively experienced. In other words, I think what Paul is describing in chapter 7 is less theology than psychology. or He's giving us the theology behind the psychological experience that he is having. I think Paul would say absolutely, theologically speaking, objectively, it is true that we have been set free and have become slaves to righteousness. He would say absolutely it is objectively true that we do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. But damn it, don't we always act or often act like that's not true? Don't we often act like we are slaves to sin? Don't we often act like we are living according to the flesh? Don't we often have the experience of the struggle, the genuine tension between what we want to do and what we see ourselves doing, and what we want to not do, and what we end up seeing ourselves doing. At the end of the day, to me, there are two reasons why I ultimately come down in this place. One is that basically everybody does. And so the most brilliant of scholars and exegetes and theologians have to work very hard to try to argue that this is not what it seems to be. 
fact, some very clever people have said that uh, that second half of verse 25 was thrown in later in later on. Somebody added in, so then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's Torah, but in the sinful nature a lot of to- slave to Torah of sin. Because otherwise it doesn't make sense. And then other scholars point out there's absolutely no evidence in the manuscripts that there was ever anything but that in that verse. So it seems like Paul put that there and he put it there for a reason. The most brilliant, the most godly of interpreters look at this passage and they say, I feel like he's talking about me. And I think we should not be so quick to neglect the witness of the Spirit. The Reformers called it autopisti, the witness of the Spirit in our own hearts as we read something in Scripture and we say, yes, that rings true. Yes, that resonates. Yes, I read that and it does seem to be about me. The other reason, quite frankly, is I think that Paul was a smart guy who knew his audience. And I don't think that Paul wrote this and said, well, of course, when they hear this read, most of the people in Rome would not have been literate, so they would have had this letter read to them. Of course, when they hear this read, they're going to know that what I mean, when I say I, I'm simply referring to Adam or to Israel or to Cain. I think Paul, if he had wanted to do something like that, would have at least provided some more clues that he was doing something figurative like that. I think at some point, every interpretive scheme has to pass the sniff test, like the milk in a bachelor's apartment fridge. At some point, you have to say, I'm not sure that works. Something seems off about that. I think that's legitimate. But there's a third reason why I'm reading this as Paul's description of his own experience, and that does have to do with sort of a figurative reading. It has to do with the question of what story Paul is telling here at this point in his argument. Many scholars have looked at this portion of Romans, and they've said, well, really, what we find here in Romans is echoes of the Exodus, echoes of the story of Paul's Uh, It's the story of God's people's release from captivity, their rescue, their deliverance from slavery. And so scholars look at what Paul says about baptism, for example, in chapter 6, and they say, well, if you look at that, you can also remember Israel passing through the waters of the Red Sea. There's a sense in which they were rescued from death to life by being brought through water. And so here we have in baptism people being brought from death to life. But if you remember the story, there are actually two passages through water, aren't there? Let's go back to Numbers chapter 13. No doubt, well worn and highlighted in your own Bibles. This, incidentally, is one of the parts of Numbers that's not as boring as some of the others. Numbers chapter 13. Remember, God's people have been brought out of Egypt. They have been rescued from slavery. 
Pharaoh's horse and rider he hath cast into the sea. And now God's people are in the wilderness. They are in the desert. En route to where? To the promised land. They're en route to the land that God has promised he's going to give his people. What is he going, what has he by this point, uh, in, in Numbers, because Numbers comes after Leviticus, what has he given his people by this point? The law. He's given them Torah. He's given his people Torah, and they have what they need to get into the land, to live well in the land. The idea was not that he was just going to kind of drop them off and say, see, he was going to fight for them. He was going to give them what they needed to prosper, to have peace, to have security. And so as they're getting ready to enter the land, Yahweh says to Moses, send some guys out to explore the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelites from each tribe, send one of its leaders. So at Yahweh's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites, and I'll leave it to you to read their names. Moses sent them out to explore Canaan. He said, go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land's like, whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good land or a bad land? What, what kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How's the soil? Is it fertile? Is it poor? Are there trees on it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. And Moses had a thing for grapes. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehob toward Labo Hamat. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron where Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron, of course, had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And when they reached the Valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. And two of them had to carry it on a pole between them along with some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. Eshkol means cluster, kind of an inside joke if you know the Hebrew. At the end of the 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. So they came back to Moses and Aaron, the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. And he gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. However, the people who live there are powerful. The cities are fortified. They're very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. Giants. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites live in the hill country. The Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. But then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who'd gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. They spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They told them the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Well, as they were wont to do that night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt 
We're in this desert. Why is Yahweh bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? They said to each other, we should find, we should choose a leader. We should find somebody else other than Moses who's going to take us back to Egypt. When Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there, Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, rent their garments and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If Yahweh is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Only do not rebel against Yahweh. Don't be afraid of the people of the land. We're going to swallow them up. Their protection's gone. But Yahweh is with us. Do not be afraid of them. So the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of Yahweh appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. Yahweh said to Moses, How long are these people going to treat me with contempt? How long are they going to refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs I've performed among them? I mean, seriously, 10 plagues in Egypt. I rescued them through the desert, through the, through the Red Sea. I'll strike them down with a plague. I'll destroy them, but you and me, Moses, will do something else. I'll make you into a nation greater and stronger than they are. Moses said to Yahweh, well... The problem with that idea is the word's going to spread. The Egyptians are going to hear about it. I mean, by your power, you brought these people up from among them. They're going to tell the inhabitants of the land about it. They've already heard that you, O Yahweh, are with these people and that you, O Yahweh, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So your reputation is kind of linked with their fortunes. If you put these people to death at all at once, when the nations have heard this report about you will say, Yahweh wasn't able to bring these people into the land he promised them on oath. So he slaughtered them in the desert. And that would be bad for your stock. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. Yahweh is slow to anger. He's abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. He doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the fathers of the third and fourth generation. But in accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. And they've already needed a good bit of pardoning, haven't they? For what have they needed to be pardoned already since departure from Egypt? What's that? Grumbling. For grumbling. They needed to be, yes, freaking for grumbling. What else? Idolatry. For idolatry. There's that little thing with the calf, right? Small little problem. Yahweh replied, all right, I've forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of Yahweh fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it, but because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. Since the Amalekites and the Canaanites are living in the valleys, turn back tomorrow, set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea. Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? 
I've heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites, so tell them, as surely as I live, declares Yahweh, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. All right, in this desert, your bodies will fall. Every one of you who's 20 years old or more, who is counted in the census, and who's grumbled against me, not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun, the only two spies who came back and gave a good report. The rest of you guys, as for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I'll bring them to, to enjoy the land that you have rejected. But you, your bodies are going to fall in this desert. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the desert. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days that you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. I, Yahweh, have spoken. I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community which is banded together against me. They'll meet their end in this desert. Here they will die. And so the men Moses had sent to explore the land who returned and made the whole community grumble against him by spreading a bad report against, about it. These men responsible for spreading the bad report about the land were struck down. They died of a plague before Yahweh. Of the men who went to explore the land, only Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, survived. So God has given his people this promise that he's going to lead them into this land. And they're going to be blessed. They're going to be prosperous. They're going to have peace. They're going to have justice. And he sends some guys to scout it out. Most of them come back and say, there's no way we can get this. No way we can make it. All except Caleb and Joshua, who said, no, if Yahweh's with us, then we're set. God gave his people instructions about taking this land. Deuteronomy 7, he says, when Yahweh your God brings you into the land you're entering to possess, when he drives out before you many nations, that was the promise, right? God was going to fight for his people. He drives out the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations that are larger and stronger than you. When Yahweh your God has delivered them over to you and you've defeated them, then you must destroy them. Totally. Don't make any treaties with them. Don't show them any mercy. Don't intermarry with them. Don't give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And Yahweh's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are due to, them, to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, burn their idols in the fire. Why? Because you are a people holy to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. And Yahweh didn't set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. In fact, you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because Yahweh loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that Yahweh your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and who keep his commands. But 
Those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws that I'm giving you today. This is at a point where Moses is kind of recapping Torah for the people. They're on the verge of entering the land. This is kind of Moses' famous last words. And if you pay attention to these laws, if you're careful to follow them, then Yahweh, your God, will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your forefathers. He's going to love you, bless you. He'll increase your numbers. He'll bless the fruit of your womb, the crops of the land, your grain, new wine and oil, the calves of your herds, the lambs of your flocks, and the land that he swore to your forefathers to give you. You will be blessed more than any other people. None of your men or women will be childless, nor any of your livestock without young. Yahweh will keep you free from every disease. He won't inflict on you the horrible diseases you knew in Egypt, but he will inflict them on all who hate you. You must destroy the peoples Yahweh your God gives over to you. Do not look on them with pity and do not serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. And you may say to yourselves, selves, these nations are stronger than we are. How can we drive them out? But don't be afraid of them. Remember well what Yahweh your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. You saw with your own eyes the great trials, the miraculous signs and wonders, the mighty hand and outstretched arm with which Yahweh your God brought you out. Yahweh your God will do the same to all the peoples that you are now afraid of. What's more, Yahweh your God will send the hornet among them until even the survivors who hide from you have perished. Don't be terrified by them, for Yahweh your God who is among you is a great and awesome God. Yahweh your God will drive out those nations before you little by little. You won't be allowed to eliminate them all at once or the wild animals will multiply around you, but Yahweh your God will deliver them over to you, throwing them into great confusion until they are destroyed. He will give their kings into your hand and you will wipe out their names from under heaven. No one will be able to stand up against you. You will destroy them. The images of their gods you are to burn in the fire. Don't covet the silver and gold on them and don't take it for yourselves or you will be ensnared by it. For it is detestable to Yahweh your God. Do not bring a detestable thing into your house or you like it will be set apart for destruction. Utterly abhor and detest it. For it is set apart for destruction. So by way of review, when the people go into the land, are they supposed to be uh, merciful and pitiful to uh, pity, uh, merciful and show pity to the people who are there. No. Are they supposed to intermarry with them? No. Are they supposed to worship their gods? No. Are they supposed to covet even the silver that is uh, on uh, that, that is overlaid the the uh, wood of their idols? No. Are they supposed to keep that silver and gold for themselves? No. Um, are they supposed to utterly destroy all the idols? Are they supposed to utterly destroy the sacred stones? Is this an agenda for theological pluralism? No. That just that sort of the side. No. God's saying you are going to enter a land whose inhabitants are practicing things that are utterly detestable and utterly vile and utterly wrong. They are following false gods, and you have to have nothing at all to do with them. You need to clean house. You need to clear out the land. And I'm the one who is ultimately going to be doing that, right? You remember God from our Torah series when 
The Israelites went into battle. The ark went ahead of them. It was like the point of the spear. God is the one who's going to do this, even though it seems that these people would beat you otherwise. In fact, that's why he has to, because they would. And so, as God's people are on the verge of entering the land, as they're about to head in, this is what, Joshua, what God says to Joshua. Remember, Joshua, one of those two spies who was faithful, who said, yeah, we can take these guys. If God's with us, who can be against us? This is the beginning of Joshua. After the death of Moses, the servant of Yahweh, Yahweh said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' right-hand man, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the great sea in the west. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Don't turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Don't let this book of Torah depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day or night so that you may be careful to do everything that's written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Don't be terrified. Don't be discouraged. For Yahweh your God will be with you wherever you go. And so Joshua ordered the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell them, get your supplies ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land Yahweh is giving you. Yahweh your God is giving you for your own. To whom is God talking here? Simple question. It's the name of the book. Joshua. And what does he tell Joshua three times? Be strong and courageous. Who is the last person you would think God would need to tell to be strong and courageous? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the two spies who went in the land, came back and said, yeah, we can take these guys. But Joshua, of all people, is being told by God to be strong and courageous. There's a sense in, in verse 7, there's a sense in which you can read the Hebrew as be very strong and, strong and very courageous in order to obey all the Torah that my servant Moses gave you. There's a sense that obedience, that faithfulness requires courage, requires strength. There's a sense in which God is telling Joshua, gird up your loins, strap on your jock. It is time to go to battle. But the battle is against more than just the Hittites and Amalekites and Perizzites and Jebusites and Canaanites. There's a sense in which 
I think when Paul talks in Romans 7 about the reality of life as we know it, where he's describing the reality of having land to conquer. There were two crossings through water, the crossing through the Red Sea on the way out of Egypt, but then there was also the crossing of the Jordan by which they entered the land. There's a sense in which if you wanted to stretch it this far, you could see baptism as those two crossings thrown together. You enter the water and you're released from sin, but then you are raised out of it in order to live a new life, to live out the new reality of our new identity that we have in Christ. But in this land that has to be conquered, we still have enemies arrayed against us. We still battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it is easy for us, rather than being faithful, rather than being strong and courageous, rather than trusting God to win these battles for us, it is easy for us to look at the things that we find in the land, the things we find in our hearts, in our homes, in our community, look at them and say they are too big for us. They're too strong for us. We cannot defeat them. But this is not the kind of attitude that God calls us to have. It is not just because the Ravens won the Super Bowl last week, although they did, that we have on the cover of our bulletin, there are two mascots. Anybody remember what their names are? Rise and Conquer. And this is the message, I think, that God has for his people. This is the message he had for Joshua. This is the message that he has for us. This description of our struggle with sin in chapter 7 is not a description of our just being out in the wilderness. This is a description of what it's like for us to try to take ground, for us to expand the kingdom into enemy territory. There is ground to be conquered. And God has promised that he will be the one who fights for us. How does he do that? That's Romans 8. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for its richness. We're grateful for the many ways in which you reveal yourself to us through it. And we know that your word is a light to our path, a lamp to our feet. We know that as we peer into this perfect word that gives understanding that your word will not be impotent. We pray, Lord, that we would be strong and courageous like Joshua. We would 
trust you as we go to take the land that you have given us, that you have claimed to be your very own. We pray that we would see the fruit of your conquering power in our own hearts and in our homes and in our community and in this world around us. We ask this in the name of our mighty champion, our Lord Jesus Christ.